0: After I decided to call today's study of God's Word, Get Real, that's our, our study today, Get Real, I got to thinking about that expression. Uh, when did it become popular? And uh, what was the understanding, the background to Get Real? So I went online because you could find anything by Googling, right? So I Googled Get Real, and it took me to a website called Glossary of 80s Terms. So I immediately realized I'm dealing with an 80s term, and I looked And all these other expressions back from the 80s brought back memories. And I wondered how many of these you might remember. So I thought I would do this as kind of a quiz slash competition. All right? I'm just going to give you half a dozen verbal expressions from the 1980s. See how many you can get. Now, here's the deal. Find a blank spot on your program right now and grab a pen Because I'll give you a word, three seconds to write down a definition, then the definition will pop up on the screen. If the definition comes up before you've written something down, sorry, you don't get the points. Okay? So no cheating here. You, You didn't have to be around in the 80s, by the way, to get some of these. Let's put the first one up here. MASH. I'll give you three seconds to write down a definition for MASH. One, two, three. The definition is to make out. And if you weren't alive back in the 1980s, you're here because your mom and dad mashed. All right? Just (laughs) thought I'd let you know. That's what we were doing back then. We were mashing. Okay? Number two, take a red. This is an imperative, a command. Okay? Give you three seconds. Write down a definition if you want the point. One, two, three. Stop right there. Makes sense. Take a red. Stop right there. How about a third one? Shred, okay, this is not Shrek, this is shred, this is a verb. Three seconds to write down a definition. Some of you are cheating, you're copying, you're exchanging answers. The right answer is to give a great performance, okay? You shred a guitar solo, you shred a trick on a skateboard or surfboard or or whatever, that's shred. How about a fourth one? Ralph, come on, if you miss this one. (laughs) I mean, this one's still around, right? Okay, you're going to Ralph if you miss this. To throw up. To throw up. Number five, bag your face. Another command, bag your face. What does it mean? One, two, three, shut up. (laughs) Some of you are going to be using that today, and you're going to say you learned it at church. All right. (laughs) Okay, a six, here's your last one, bounce. What is the verb Bounce mean? 1001, 1002, 1003, it means to leave a place. If you want to leave it in a hurry, you book it, or you jet, or you motor. Okay, those are all 80s expressions as well. How'd you do? Anybody get six out of six? Okay, anybody get five out of six? I see a couple of hands go up, like, I think I kind of cheated, but maybe I got it. Yeah, you're, you're still living in the 80s. <laughs> All right, today we're going to focus on the 80s expression, get real, and get real means stop kidding yourself, face the facts, do a reality, reality check. So I want you to bag your face, bounce on over to James chapter 2, okay? James chapter 2, once you get there, take a read and listen carefully as I shred this sermon. Whoa, that was so 80s, yeah. Uh, oh, the things you will clap at. <laughs> we're, we're in the fifth week of a 12-part series going verse by verse through the epistle to James. We've given the title to the series is Faith That Makes a Difference. That's James' central theme. And the argument for that theme is best found in today's passage. We're looking at James chapter 2, 14 to 26. It's actually a corollary of the theme. Okay, the theme is this, the theme is that if you've got genuine faith, it's going to make a difference in your life so that you make a difference in the lives of other people. The corollary that we're looking at today is this, if this is not happening, okay, if you claim to have faith but it's not making a difference in your life so that you're not making a difference in the lives of other people, then you don't have genuine faith, you've got bogus faith. And James' challenge to you would be, get real Get real. So two main points today. If you haven't taken the outline out, you want to take that out, fill it in. So as God teaches you from his word, you're going to recall what it is God's said to you. This is important stuff. Two main points, the dangers of bogus faith and the demonstrations of genuine faith. And I'm going to give you three examples of each. So number one, the dangers of bogus faith. But before we take a look at James' three examples of these dangers, we better define what he means by bogus faith. Or phony or fake faith. For, for James, bogus faith is faith that's not accompanied by good deeds. That's simply put. In fact, you want to jot that down. Bogus faith is faith that's not accompanied by good deeds. And James is going to bring up, in the short passage we're looking at today, he's going to bring up the topic of faith ten times, and every time he mentions it, he immediately talks about deeds or actions. He always couples them together. For James, you can't have one without having the other. If if you were playing the word association game with James, and you said faith and, he'd immediately respond deeds. Okay, that's, that's the answer. Like if I would say to you today, peanut butter and... Yeah, jelly, I could hear that even from the regional campuses. Or spaghetti and? Biscuits and? Corned beef and? And hash? Or cabbage? Well, I don't know what you're eating. but Well, in in a similar fashion, faith and deeds, they they always go together. Now, what does James mean by deeds? If it's always got to be faith and deeds, what does he mean by deeds? Well, he, he could mean several things. He could mean obedience to God's moral commands. So you're interested in what the Bible has to say by way of do's and don'ts, and you're going to obey those things. He, he would mean generous or kind deeds. He would mean patterns of serving God and other people. Those would be the kind of deeds he'd have in mind. He'd have in mind spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and praying and worshiping together. If you claim to have faith, But your faith is not accompanied by the deeds, the sorts of deeds I just described, then James would say your faith is bogus. And then he warns about three dangers associated with bogus faith. So, the first one is found in verse 14. Jot this down bogus faith can't save you. Bogus faith can't save you. This is really, really, really important. You don't want to miss this. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, uh uh-uh, can't save you. Now, recall, if you would, that James is writing to very religious readers, Jewish Christ followers, people who came out of Judaism. So they grew up studying their Bibles, the Old Testament as we know it today. They knew God's commands, God's do's and don'ts, and they tried their best to walk in obedience to those commands. And in many cases, if not most cases, they felt as if their salvation depended upon it. You know, how good a job they did at doing those deeds, uh, filling out those commandments. Unfortunately, that kind of an approach to a relationship with God, it's seriously flawed, isn't it? Because if you you think your salvation, if you think your relationship with God is dependent upon your deeds, you're left asking the question, how many? How many deeds? How how will I know if I've ever met with God's approval? How will I know if I've ever done enough? And so it leads to insecurity in a relationship with God and guilt when you feel like you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and a sense that God is distant and out there. That's James, Jewish, Christ-following readers. And it's probably some of you. In fact, in fact, let me ask this. How many of you come from backgrounds where you grew up with that sort of a system? You grew up believing it depended on how, how good you do it, did at religious rituals and good works and, uh, and moral rule keeping your salvation depended upon it. Raise your hand if that describes you. Okay? A lot of people. A lot. And wasn't it a relief to encounter the good news of Jesus Christ? Wasn't it a relief one day to have someone share with you, you know, that's not the way it works. In fact, you can't earn your salvation by your deeds because none of us is that good. Which is why Jesus took the punishment for our badness when he died on the cross. And Jesus will now give you a clean slate with God. He will give you salvation in all its many facets if you'll surrender your life to him by faith. By faith. That's what what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Very familiar words. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Paul says it's it's by grace. It's not by deeds. It's through faith. It's a gift that you receive through faith. When some of us heard this for the first time, it was such a, a relief. But unfortunately, in some cases, what it leads to is a swing to the polar extreme. This is what it led to in James' readers and in many of our lives. You you say, okay, if I'm saved by grace through faith, it's got nothing to do with deeds. Then Deeds don't really matter to God, right? Wrong, James would say. See, you may be saved by faith alone, but genuine faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by deeds. Have you heard me say that before? Okay, you're saved by faith alone. But genuine faith is never alone. It's it's always accompanied by deeds. If you claim to have faith, but but you're not producing God-pleasing deeds in your life, something's wrong. You've got bogus faith. And that kind of faith, the danger is, is it can't save anybody. Now, some of you are saying, well, wait a second. Let's go back to what Paul said in that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 passage. It seems to be at odds with what James is saying. Paul underscores it's through faith. It's not by works. Yeah, but if you keep reading Paul, which you ought to do, you ought to not cut him off in mid-thought. The Paul who wrote Ephesians 2.8 and 9 also wrote Ephesians 2.10, and in Ephesians 2.10 we read, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. That was weak. To do what? Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The reason, Paul says, God saves you by grace through faith is to make you into a new person in Christ who's eager to do good works. You following this? Maybe this bums you out. You know, if you did come to Christ out of a religious background... You still remember those old days when you were doing your best to win God's approval with your deeds, and it always left you feeling insecure and guilty and distant from God. And You you were so relieved when you heard the good news about Christ that salvation is by grace through faith. And here I am, I'm throwing deeds back into the mix. I'm telling you, you need to be a good hamster and get back on the wheel and do, 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 even though it's never going to lead anywhere. I'm telling you to go back to the old system, right? Now, that's not what I'm saying at all. There's a really important distinction to be made here. There's a difference between doing deeds in order to earn your salvation and doing deeds as an expression of your faith. Let let, let me illustrate the difference and why doing deeds is a joy and not not a tedious, laborious sort of thing that God demands of you. Once upon a time, there was a a woman who was married to a very demanding husband. This is not a story of Sue's life, by the way. Okay, And uh, every morning, this guy, would, before he left for work, he would write out a list of things he expected his wife to do that day. And at the end of the day, he'd come home and he'd inspect. And if she'd done everything on the list, he'd pat her on the back and say, great job, honey. And, you know, she would feel somewhat better. If she didn't get everything done on the list, he would frown, And he would scold a little bit and he would let her know that she had somehow failed and she'd just feel like dirt. It was oppressive. Well, one day, this guy has a heart attack and he dies. And several years later, this woman remarries. And she remarries a guy who is generous and who is kind and who is encouraging. And sometime after their 10-year anniversary, she's going through a kitchen drawer one day, cleaning things up, and she comes across One of those lists that her first husband had put together years ago. And as she looks at the list, you know what surprises her? She's doing everything on the list for husband number two. Because she wants to, not because she has to. You see the difference? When you put your hope and your trust in Jesus and you receive salvation as a gift, That faith decision on your part leads to a desire out of gratitude to serve God, to do the good deeds that God created you in Christ to do. And bogus faith doesn't produce those kind of grateful deeds, which is why you should be concerned if you don't see deeds in your life, if if you don't see an eagerness to do good works, if you don't see an eagerness to obey God's moral commands. I'm not saying they're easy. They're they're hard. But if there's not an eagerness on your part, I want to do this. Or to practice spiritual disciplines to draw closer to God, like praying and reading the Bible and worshiping. If you you don't see that, then James would say, you don't have the sort of faith that can save you. And and by the way, James doesn't care what you claim at this point. Go back to the verse I read a moment ago, verse 14. In the middle of the verse, circle the word claims if you were talking to James, James would say, you know, you, you could claim that you've put your faith in Christ. You could claim that you've prayed the prayer. You could claim that you've been forgiven. But he'd look at you and he'd shake his head and say, uh-uh. You know, your, your kind of faith with few deeds to show for it can't save anybody. Here's a second danger. Bogus faith does no good. It does no good. Pick it up at verse 15. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? does no good. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now drop down to verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Now, there are two words I want you to circle if you brought your Bible with you. It's the the word dead at the end of verse 17 and the word useless at the end of verse 20. They mean practically the same thing. Let me start with the word dead. Now, when I I say dead, when James writes dead, don't think of a dead person. Think of of a dead apple tree, okay? If I take you into an orchard at harvest time and I say, you see that tree over there? It's dead. It's dead. What is the telltale sign? What is the evidence that the tree is dead? What is missing? Don't think too hard about this. What is missing? No fruit. There are no apples there. So when James says dead, he's saying this sort of faith, bogus faith doesn't produce anything. Now drop down to verse 20. The word you circled there was the word useless, it means the same thing. Does no good, it's not productive. You ever use epoxy glue to fix something? It's a, it's a, a compound adhesive. Uh, if, if you go out to Ace Hardware and you pick up epoxy glue, it comes these days in one of those plastic hypo, hypodermic needle-looking jobs, and there are two cylinders inside, one of resin and one of hardener. And you push the plunger, and the two come out together, and they mix, and that's what forms the adhesive. Now, do this experiment sometime. Try fixing something with only the resin or only the hardener, one or the other, but not both. You know, take, take that coffee mug that the handle is broken off of and try to cement the, uh, you, you know, the clay parts, the pottery parts together. It won't hold with just the res- resin or just the hardener. They've got to work in concert with each other. That, that's what James is saying there. You, you can't have faith Without deeds, they go together. They do no good unless they're working hand-in-hand with each other. Now, James, he takes us to an example in verses 15 and 16 that I read to you a moment ago. He says, imagine this situation. Somebody's lacking in clothes, doesn't have daily food. Now, just so you know, in James' day, that wouldn't have been a hypothetical situation. James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. It was a church known for its poverty, in fact, years later, when the Apostle Paul is writing his New Testament letters, he keeps referring to an offering that he's, that he's taking up as he goes from city to city on his missionary journeys. He's collecting financial, uh, a financial offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem. So James says to his readers, so you see someone without clothes or food and you say, go in peace, keep warm, be fed, but you do nothing to meet those needs? James says, you've got bogus faith. It's dead. It's not productive. It's useless. You know, you you got faith that doesn't put clothes on anybody's back. You got faith that doesn't put food on anybody's table. You got faith that does no good thing. That's just not genuine faith. It's bogus, phony, fake faith. Third danger of this kind of faith. It gives a false sense of security. Go back to the verses we skipped over, 18 and 19. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Yeah, show me your faith without deeds, because I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. Oh, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, James anticipates as he's writing this epistle that there are going to be objectors among his readers, You know, there's bound to be someone who says, you know, I don't think faith and deeds are as inseparable as you're making them out to be. I think they're two distinct entities. In fact, I think it's quite possible for one person to say, I have faith, and another person to to say, I have deeds. And James retorts, really? Well, then you just try, here's here's a little experiment. You try to show me your faith without deeds, because I don't think you can do it. Faith is invisible. Deeds are what make faith manifest. In fact, in in verse 18, I'm always telling you to look for repeating words, okay? Verse 18, the word show pops up twice. Circle it. Deeds show that you've got faith. Let me use an analogy here. You're looking out your window one day, and you say to someone beside you, Oh, it's a windy day out there. How do you know it's a windy day? Can you see the wind? Can, can anybody here see wind? Now, of course you can't. What what do you see? You see what wind does. That's what you see, right? You, the reason you say it's a windy day is because you're looking out there and there's this flag flapping furiously in the breeze. Or there's a tree that's bent over, or there's a guy holding onto his hat. You say it's windy. Now, on another day, someone might say to you, hey, is it windy out there still? And you look out the window, and you say, no, nah, no, it's not. How do you know? You know because there's no evidence of wind. The invisible wind is not being made manifested by what it does. James would say to his readers, no deeds, and no faith. No deeds, no faith. At which point James anticipates a second objection. Someone pipes up and says, Well, wait a second. Who are you to tell me I don't have faith? I believe in God. James says, Really? Well, even demons believe in God, and they shudder at his awesomeness. But this doesn't make demons card-carrying Christ followers, does it? It doesn't change their behavior. It doesn't change their attitudes. Please don't have a false sense of security. James would say, just because you believe that you have faith in God, just because you nod your head to certain essential facts about who He is, you believe that Jesus is God's Son. You believe that Jesus came to Earth in human form. You believe you believe that He died on the cross to pay for sins. You believe that people can be forgiven by putting their hope and trust in Him. You believe that you nod your head to those facts. Or you mouth the words, you pray the prayer that somebody like Pastor Jim encouraged you to pray. But that's as far as it goes. James says you may have a false sense of security. That's a very dangerous thing. Because Jesus warned that one day people would stand before him at Judgment Day. They'd say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, I'm going to have to say to some of those folks, Matthew 7, verse 23, away from me, I never knew you. See, the dangers of bogus faith, it can't save you, it does no good, and it gives you a false sense of security. Let's talk about the demonstrations of genuine faith. That's our second point. James, again, gives us three examples, three demonstrations of genuine faith, and the first is found in verses I've already read to you, verses 15 through 17, so I won't read them again, but we'll put them up here on the screen. James exposes in these verses the inconsistency of claiming to have faith while ignoring people's needs. And James says, you know, that that just won't wash because a person with genuine faith looks for opportunities to provide such things as clothes and food for destitute people. So genuine faith, here's the first mark of it, it meets needs. It meets needs. Now, we're Kind of celebrating community impact weekend, this special ministry we have. And the intention of it is to hook you up with opportunities to meet the, destitute, uh, the desperate needs of destitute people around you, uh, people in nursing homes, people in jails, people in crisis pregnancy centers, people in homeless shelters, people who live in your neighborhood, people right under our noses. And so we've got this ministry that will, will acquaint you with opportunities to meet these needs. Let let me quickly share a couple of stories of Christ Community Church people who are out there meeting needs through our Community Impact Ministry. And by the way, I could cite dozens of stories. I hear them every week. They always make me beam because I think, yeah, that's what we should be doing. So first story is about a woman named Lynn. Lynn is part of our Kids Hope program. If you volunteer for Kids Hope, uh, we will connect you. We'll match you up with an at-risk child in one of the local public schools okay, and it, it takes an hour of your week. During the school day, you show up and, you, you know, you connect with that child. You play a game or help with homework or whatever. Some of you are saying, well, that rules me out immediately because I work a day job. And I want you to know many of our volunteers for Kids Hope work day jobs, but they take time off. They take an hour off, get permission from the boss, lunch break or a coffee break in the middle of the day, and they, they go to a public school, and connect with their child. So she goes to the school, and does, and she sees her little buddy, and he's got his head down on the desk this morning. And he, he looks pretty lethargic, and so she asked the teacher, what, what's going on? And the teacher said, well, you know, he probably hasn't had any breakfast. In fact, some of the kids who come here to this public school in a nice suburban setting like ours, some of these families don't have money to put breakfast on the table. And so Lynn thought to herself, well, we can't let this remain the way it is. And so she went around to a variety of our community groups, and she collected goods, breakfast goods, put them in a bin. She leaves that at the school, and they replenish it regularly, she does. And so there are a bunch of kids now who would have gone hungry without breakfast every day who are now being fed by Lynn and her efforts. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a... There's a second story. I love this one. Curtis and Amy, they're at our Blackberry Creek campus. So, way to go, Blackberry! Uh, Curtis and Amy volunteer at Hesed House. It's a homeless shelter down in Aurora that we work with. We partner with, and uh, they noticed that a lot of homeless people are out of shape, and so they volunteered to start a running club with homeless people. So, three days a week, they take homeless people out for a run, a jog. Now. Obviously, they don't have the right gear, but that didn't stop Curtis and Amy. They went to a local shoe store, and they got donated a bunch of new pairs of kicks. Those are, are shoes. That's an 80s term, kicks. Yeah. <laughs> they, they got all these kicks donated, and people are now out. Jo- they even did their first 5K competition for these folks. And you know what they've discovered? They've discovered that when people start working out and achieving something, they want to achieve in other areas of their lives. And they also found that when you're hanging out with people like this, there are all sorts of opportunities to talk about Jesus. Real faith, genuine faith meets needs. Here's the second demonstration of genuine faith. It passes tests. Go to verse 20. You foolish person, do you want to evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, do you know the story of Abraham? Abraham was a good guy for James to use as a role model. Because, again, he's writing to Jewish Christ followers, and Abraham was the father of the Jewish race. It'd be like me using as a, as a role model with you guys George Washington. Okay? And he, he, he refers to a story about Abraham. Abraham in his old age, his wife's an old lady at the time as well, they're childless, and God gives them a miracle baby, the baby they name Isaac, because Isaac in Hebrew means laughter, and it was a pretty funny thing. You know, in fact, when God announced to Sarah that she was going to become pregnant, Sarah laughed. You know, <laughs> good joke, God. Well, Sarah has a baby, Isaac, and as Isaac is growing up, God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable. He asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar to give him up. Now we know from Scripture, other Scriptures, this was a test. God had no intention of Isaac being slain. In fact, you can read about. About this as a test in Hebrews 11, if you're following that Bible reading schedule I've been trying to move you in the direction of, the Scripture Union Bible reading schedule, we read Hebrews 11 this past week about uh, Abraham's faith demonstrated by his willingness, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And because of that willingness, he passed the test. Isaac was spared. James says that it's Abraham's faith combined with his willingness to do this deed that demonstrated that Abraham was a righteous man. I mean, look look again at verse 24. At the conclusion of the story, James draws an application to our lives. He says, You can see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, you read this statement for many people, it causes great uneasiness and confusion. Because you say, well, no, this is not the way the Apostle Paul tells the story. I mean, Paul talks about Abraham and his righteousness, but he comes at it from an entirely different angle. So if you go to Paul's letters, this is what Paul says. He he refers not to the part of the story where Abraham sacrifices, almost sacrifices Isaac, But to the beginning of the story, when God appears to Abraham, takes him outside on a dark night, points up at the stars and says, Abraham, I'd like to give you as many descendants as the stars in the heaven. And scripture says Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, if you would, was saved at that point. So would say the apostle Paul. You say, well, well, wait wait a second, no deeds? No no deeds at that point, just believing that God was going to fulfill his promise. What about what James says? It was because of his faith and what he did. Like, can we put Paul and James in a locked room and say, you guys are not coming out until you can agree on this? So, you know, just duke it out and come on out when you're ready. The truth is, they're not in disagreement with each other. The the truth is they're saying exactly what I said earlier in the sermon. First, that you're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's Paul in his epistles talking about Abraham looking at the sky and saying, I believe God's going to do what he promises to do. Uh, on On the other hand, genuine faith, I said, is never alone. It's always accompanied by deeds. That's James' point, that it was Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac. The the, the two are flip sides of the same coin. Another way to put it would be this. You are declared righteous before God by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's a legal proclamation. Put your faith in Christ. Declared righteous. On the other hand, you demonstrate that you are indeed righteous by the good deeds that follow. That you have saving faith by the deeds that follow. So it's... God's declaration, it's our demonstration. Flip sides of the same coin. You with me? You get it? Good. Now, let's go back to the story, though. So Abraham passes this test. That's the demonstration of his faith. Bring it home to your life. What tests might you have to pass in order to demonstrate that your faith is genuine? You know, it may be the test of losing something that's dear to you. Not not almost losing it, like Abraham almost losing Isaac, but actually losing it. There's nothing like losing a loved one, nothing like losing your job, losing your your health. To reveal whether your faith is in God, genuine faith, or it's in other things, bogus faith. Loss is is a test of faith. Here's another test suggested by the prophet Malachi in the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi says tithing is a test of faith. Okay, Giving money away? Are you crazy giving the first 10% of your income back to the Lord for his work? Malachi would say, he'd say, well, you know, do you believe God? Do you believe that God's going to meet your your needs, that you're going to be able to pay your bills even though you give money away? Do you have that kind of faith or not? Or here's another variety of that. Maybe you've got all the money you need to pay your bills, but you still have a a hard time tithing. And I think Malachi would say to you, do you truly believe God's promise that you'll be happier by giving money away than hoarding it and spending it on yourself? Do you really believe that? Now, there are other tests, I'm sure, of faith. If we had time to tease them out, you, you could probably come up with some. Is your faith proving to be genuine by the way you pass these tests. Now, I'm not going to suggest that that we all need to be straight-A students in this regard. We will flunk an occasional exam, a faith exam. But by and large, if you've got genuine faith, you're, you're going to discover it passing tests. Here's the third demonstration in what Paul writes. James writes, excuse me, I've been talking about Paul. Go down to verse 25, closing verses Of this chapter. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Third demonstration of genuine faith is it changes loyalties. And the story here is a story of a a woman named Rahab. That I would love to look at in detail if we had the time in Joshua 2. You're just going to have to go home and read this story for yourself. Okay, the, the, the thumbnail sketch of it is this. Israel is about to enter the promised land. Okay, this piece of real estate that God said he would give his people after releasing them from bondage in Egypt, uh, General Joshua takes them to the border of the promised land, and God says, okay, go in and take it, but it's not going to be yours without a struggle. There's going to be bat- there are going to be battles to be fought, evil to overcome, and the first evil standing in front of them is this big city called Jericho. And Jericho is known for its thick walls, its tall, impregnable walls. And so General Joshua, before they engage in a battle with Jericho, he sends a couple of spies to check things out. Maybe there's a weakness in the city that they can exploit. And so these two spies, they're checking out Jericho, and the king of Jericho gets word that they're there, and he sends out a search party to find them, capture them. So they get word of this, and they're looking for a place to hide. And a, a prostitute by the name of Rahab volunteers to hide them. And afterward, she helps them escape. And James says that's a demonstration of genuine faith. Now, what is it about Rahab's faith that makes it a, a demonstration of genuine faith. How is it a demonstration of genuine faith? I read several Bible commentary scholars on this. One guy said, well, it's a demonstration of hospitality. And earlier in James do James says, if you've got real faith, you'll clothe people who need clothes. You'll feed people who need food. You know, I suppose you'll show hospitality to people who need hospitality. That's what she's doing here. I read that and I thought, I don't think so. You know, I, I don't think that this is a show of hospitality. I mean, the guys who dropped in on her, they weren't two homeless men looking for a shelter. They weren't a couple of out-of-town tourists looking for a bed and breakfast. They, they, they were two spies. So in reality, Rahab was committing treason, not showing hospitality by harboring them. Why, why would Rahab risk being caught for treason? Because Rahab had switched sides. Rahab had changed loyalties. Rahab was playing for a new team, and that took faith. Rahab was no longer a Jericho girl. Rahab was now a God's kingdom girl. In fact, she tells the spies, she says, I've heard about your God. I've heard what he's done. I've heard how when you came out of Egypt, he parted the Red Sea, and you walked through on dry, dry ground. We got word of that. I heard. I heard about how, how when you were passing through the desert on your way here, there were enemy armies that attacked you and God destroyed them. I heard all that. In Joshua 2, verse 11, Rahab says, So the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. See, see this change of loyalties here? I know who the real God is now. Her faith caused her to change loyalty. She now belonged to God, hook, line, sinker. And one of the evidences of this new loyalty and we get this from inference, kind of reading between the lines from the rest of her story, and other parts of the Bible. It was a transformation of her sex life. I mean, this one-time sleep-around girl, evidently at some point later, settled down with a God-fearing man and produced a line of descendants from which Jesus eventually came. I mean, sometimes go to Matthew chapter one and read the gene- genealogy of Jesus, and in the middle of the genealogy is Rahab the prostitute. Do you have genuine faith? Do you have faith that demonstrates itself in a new, in a fierce loyalty to God? Do you look like you're a player on God's team or do you look like you're a player on the world's team? You know, when it comes to issues such as sexual standards, do you look like God's team or the world's team? When it comes to personal priorities, what you spend your money on, your time on, your efforts on, do do you look like you're a God player or a world player? Business ethics. God's team or the world's team? Have you truly changed loyalties? My my son Andrew is a photojournalist for a missions organization, and he dropped in on us this past week. He's Uh, Spent the last month in India and he's traveling through town on his way. Next month he'll be in Nicaragua. And so while he was home and his fiance was in town, Sue and I took him out for dinner, Andrew and Mary. And uh, they were catching us up on their lives and he he told me one amusing story. He said when he was traveling in Europe several months ago, he was hanging out with some uh, Dutch young adults, 20-somethings. And uh, they expressed surprise when Andrew told them that he was engaged. They expressed surprise that his fiance wasn't traveling with him, that they're not living together. And Andrew took a deep breath and he said, well, you know, both of us are followers of Jesus. And one of the things Jesus teaches in the Bible, God's word, is that sex is to be reserved for a marriage relationship, a commitment. And so we're waiting. And this is the amusing part. One one of the Dutch young people looked at him and said, we've heard that there are people like that. (laughs) <laughs> but, but we've never met one. <laughs> yeah. are, are you one of those people like that? I mean, is it really obvious by the way that you live that you're on God's team and not the world's team that you've changed loyalties, that your loyalties are different? Is it obvious that you're wearing God's jersey and not the world's jersey anymore? In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. Our bands are going to come out at all four of our campus uh, stages right now so that we can move that direction. But as they do, let me remind you that Jesus put it all on the line for you. He gave his life on the cross. But what what he desires in response is faith, but not bogus faith. Not faith that can't save you any, anyway, faith that does no good. He, want, he wants genuine faith that's out there meeting needs, that's passing tests, that's changed loyalties and is wearing his jersey now. That's the kind of faith that he wants.